Well, hey, good morning. So good to see you all this morning. I know some of you are going to be disappointed when that sick beat stops being played every Sunday morning. Um, I feel it in the room. Everyone starts getting a little groove on. Uh, before I go any further this morning, I have to start by saying happy anniversary to my wife of 23 years. Y'all thought we looked young now. Look at us in 1999, all right? Um, that is us. And so, uh, man, I'm thankful for my bride. So I'm, I think of Song of Solomon 4, verse 9, that says, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. And she continues to captivate my heart the longer we're married. And so, enough of the mushy stuff. Happy anniversary, honey. I love you. Um, so, now to the business at hand. We are in this uh, year of discipleship, we're calling it, and it's based around this Bible reading plan, this F260 Bible reading plan. Uh, by the way, I'm reminded that as we're in the series called Prepare the Way, we're wrapping up the Old Testament. Jesus is coming soon. The title of our sermon today is called Growing Through Opposition, which has nothing to do with our marriage, all right? Um, has nothing to do with it at all. It just happens to land on this day. Um, so Bible reading plan, if you haven't joined us, we're in week 28. We're starting week 28. Uh, so I would love to invite you to join us. You can go online, friendshipwire.com slash 2022. Physical copies, you can grab at Next Steps. We'd love to have you join us uh, as we are wrapping up the Old Testament and jumping into the new in just a few weeks. So we have seen over the last number of weeks, God's people who are taken into exile. They're taken out of Jerusalem into exile in Babylon because of their sin, their rebellion against God. God is a gracious God. He continues to give them warning of impending judgment if they don't turn from their other gods to worship him and there is, though he is gracious, there's this inevitable judgment that comes because of their disobedience. So they're taken into exile for 70 years, but God's promises are true. He is faithful to his covenant and he brings this remnant of people back from Jerusalem uh, to Jerusalem out of uh, Babylon after 70 years. And what we see in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament is that there are two groups of exiles that come uh, back into Jerusalem. They're led by these guys named Zerubbabel and Ezra. And what those, those two groups of exiles returning do is they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem because that was so central to the people of God and their worship of the Lord. And then we come to Nehemiah. We're gonna be in the book of Nehemiah today. And what you find with Nehemiah is he, he plays this role of cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes in Persia. Now a cupbearer was you know, a fancy term for the guy who before wine was served to the king, the cupbearer would take a, like, a gulp of that to make sure no one was trying to poison the king. All right, so pretty cush job. You drink wine all day long until you don't and you're dead. Um, that, was, that was Nehemiah's role, all right? So he hears of the people returning and he finds out about the condition of the people and of the city that's been broken down and the walls that have, have crumbled and, and he has a burden for the broken down walls. And the walls uh, obviously represented protection and defense against enemies. Uh, broken down walls uh, kind of represented a defeated people. And so Nehemiah saw this and he was very burdened, the scriptures say, so much so that he, he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays and, and he just prays to the God of heaven and says, God, give me favor with the king. I want to go back and rebuild the walls. And so four months later, 
the, the, God answers that prayer. The king notices Nehemiah's sadness and he inquires about it. And Nehemiah requests to take a third group of exiles back into Jerusalem in order to rebuild the wall. And so this is what happens. Nehemiah 8, 2, verse 8, it says this. The king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. And I think this is really important because you see this phrase and this idea repeated multiple times in Nehemiah, also in the book of Ezra, uh, as God's people are coming back to do this work, that God's hand is at work, that he has guided and orchestrated things in such a way that, that the kings would have favor on these Jewish exiles and allow them to go back and even finance some of the work that God is doing back in Jerusalem. And so the good hand of my God was upon me. And I want to look at a few other verses in Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll eventually be here in chapter 6 in a moment. But I want to hit verses 17 through 20 of chapter 2 because I think it's a really good summary of the book of Nehemiah as a whole. And so here's, here's kind of this pattern you see in, in Scripture and in our lives and here in Nehemiah chapter 2. You see this burden or this vision for God's work through a leader. Nehemiah 2, 17 says this, then I, Nehemiah, said to them, he's in front of the Jewish people, he says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So there's this burden that Nehemiah has and he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. So God gives this vision, this burden to a leader. And then the second thing that we see as we move along is that the people rise up to build under this leader. It says that they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. So there's this burden through a leader. The people rise up to build, to do the work of God. It says that they strengthen their hands for this work ahead of them. And then we see immediately following that opposition that rises up to counter God's work. And again, this happens all throughout the story of God and really in all the work of God down through the ages. That as soon as people, the people of God, rise up to do the work of the Lord, opposition rises up along with it to counter the work of God. Verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat the uh, Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And so you hear these names that we'll hear several times throughout chapter 6, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. They're the opposition that comes against God's people and God's work. So people rise up to build, to do the work of God. Opposition rises up to counter God's work. And then this kind of fourth thing that we see here, verse number 20, that God's hand of blessing, God's hand of provision is on his work. Verse number 20, then I, Nehemiah, replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So there, again, there's this pattern that when God is working, opposition pops up to counter it. And so we're gonna be here in Nehemiah chapter six. And let me tell you, like I love the book 
of Nehemiah. Such a good book. I've really been thinking about a way to preach the book, honestly, ever since like COVID, because it's all about rebuilding, rebuilding the work of, of God. And, and the book of Nehemiah is often referenced as a, a great book on leadership. And I will, I will grant you that there's tons of great leadership principles and nuggets that you can glean from the book of, of Nehemiah, but it's so much more than just a book about leadership. What, what I see when I read the book of Nehemiah is, is it's this beautiful picture of, of God's people who are burdened for God's work. And so they rise up to build and they lock arms with one another and together side by side, they do the work of God. And it really kind of, it, it's an example of what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the body and every member of the body is important and necessary and the body works together as one. And we see that in Nehemiah, the people of God who rise up to do the work of God together. And I'm reminded of, of how Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says, I am going to build my church and we know the church is the people of God, and that God uses people. He builds up his church. Here's the reality. When there, whenever there is a building, like the work of God is building, there will always be opposition to the work of God. There will always be opposition to the work of God. And here's what I believe today. You may or may not agree with me, but I believe God is doing a great work here. I believe it. I love seeing what God is doing in this church. I believe he's doing a great work. Not good, great. I think he's doing some incredible things. But the reality is, is that opposition is to be expected. And so the title today, as I mentioned a moment ago, is Growing Through Opposition. We're going to look in Nehemiah chapter 6. There's so much that we can learn here um, as a church and as individual followers of Jesus about how the enemy comes after us and how the enemy attacks and opposes the work of God in our life and in our church. And so you'll see if you follow along in the digital bulletin and sermon notes, I have some verses listed in Nehemiah 4. We're not going to look at those this morning, but it basically tells us how the people, you know, they rise up to build. They had a mind to work, it says. Like they were focused on joining Nehemiah in this work and they were met with opposition. And the way that they met that opposition was with prayer. And we see that, we've been seeing that through uh, Daniel and Esther, that when the people of God are pushed into a corner, they pray and God works. And Nehemiah, in leading up to chapter six, Nehemiah leads out and he says, hey, listen, people, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is awesome and, and mighty and, and yet fight for your brothers and your sisters and mothers and fathers. He says, remember God, but fight for one another. And then he goes on to say, our God will fight for us. So it's this picture of like our cooperation with God, that God is the one who fights for us, but we are to be faithful to him and work and to fight for one another. And then we come to Nehemiah chapter six, which is where the opposition really comes. And so a few things that I want us to see this morning. The first thing is this, the enemy tries to distract us. The enemy tries to distract us. So Nehemiah 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. 
Verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim, Hakawa, in the plain of, oh no, bless you. Um, but they intended to do me no harm, or they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And so we see here, the enemy tries to distract us. He identifies these men, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. They are their enemies, and they're trying to arrange a meeting with Nehemiah. They're trying to get him to come down from the wall, from the work that he is doing, to meet with them. But Nehemiah, one of the things you see about Nehemiah as a leader and as a man, he was very discerning. He had incredible discernment. He, he, he could see through the charade, right? He said, they intend to do me harm. And here, here's one hint. I think if you're, if you're kind of dialed in, they asked to meet him in the plain of Ono. All right, does that, I mean, any flags here? Oh, no. Like if someone was like, hey, would you meet me in the plain of, I'm going to beat you up. And be like, ah, I don't, I'm not going there. All right. This was, this was Nehemiah. He had discernment. He saw through it. They were intending to do him harm. And so I love the response of Nehemiah. Here's what he said. He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. In other words, I will not be distracted from the work that God is calling me to do. I'm not going to hey, sorry, I'm busy. I got better things. I'm, I've got a great work that I am doing, and I cannot come down. And I love the, the specific wording of this. I love that he uses the word great. I'm doing a great work. Because here's the reality for Nehemiah was, and for the, the, the Jewish people. There was many, many good things that they could have been doing. Many good things. But here's the reality is that often good is the enemy of great. And I want to read this, this quote from Jim Collins from his book. This is kind of one of these very popular um, leadership business books. He's a Christian man, but I love this quote from Jim Collins in Good to Great. He says this, good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. Did you see what he did there? Principally, we don't have good schools. Some of you aren't catching that. All right. Uh, no offense. We have one great principal of Watery Elementary, Shane Bagwell, in the house. Um, okay, going on. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it is just so easy to settle for a good life. Good is the enemy of great. And this is true in so many areas of life. This is true in your family. This is true in parenting. That there's there's so many good things that you could do with your family and with your kids and you can get them involved in, none of them necessarily bad, but good things can sometimes crowd out what is great. And especially, listen, y'all, in Christian families, we can get our, our kids involved in all kinds of good stuff that will develop in a lot of different ways. But if we don't have them rooted in the family of God and the church of God and the ways of the Lord, man, all of that good stuff is for naught. If we're not focused on the great thing, and that's getting them into the ways of the Lord, training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's true in business that good is the enemy of great. There's a lot of good things a business can do, but is it doing 
the things that are most important, that are most necessary. And some of you might say, well, I'm not a leader in any way. Well, yeah, you are. Every single one of us is called to lead ourselves, the self-leadership. And so personal priorities, listen, there are so many good things that you could give your time to. And you probably do. You could run down the list of all the good things that you do. And yet, what is the great things? What is, like, so let me ask you, stuff like being in the Word of God, developing a relationship with God. Those are the great things. Letting him change your heart through being in his word, being with God's people. There are great things that sometimes we get distracted by all the good things. We get busy with the good. And what's going on here is is Nehemiah, he says, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. You know, it's true in the church. There are so many good things that we could do as a church. There are many good things that we want to do as a church. There are many good things that, Lord willing, we will do as a church. But y'all, I'm convinced that the great work that God has called us to in this season right now is the work of discipleship, of making sure that we're, we're growing in relationship with God, that he's changing our hearts and our lives to where we reflect his glory and we find joy in who he is. And that is why we're calling this the year of discipleship, because we could do a lot of good stuff. But if we're not ultimately growing in Christ, that is the great work, is allowing him to change us and conform us to the image of his son. Listen, if we're not doing that great work, we're missing out. And so the enemy tries to distract us. Four times the enemy attempts to distract Nehemiah. Four times he responds, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Over and over, he is laser focused on what God has called him to, the task at hand, the burden that God has given him. So this past week, uh, I saw an example of this. Um, one of the most underrated and spectacular sporting events in all the world that I think most of us probably miss out on took place on July 4th. It's Nathan's famous 4th of July hot dog eating contest. Anybody watch this? Anybody ever seen one of these? Okay, a couple of you. Um, the rest of you are missing out, all right? So there's this contest where, you know, all kinds of scores of... Um, men and women come to see how many hot dogs they can eat in Nathan's famous hot dogs in 10 minutes. I mean, it is a 10 minutes you'll never get back, but it is a glorious 10 minutes. Um, So this past Monday, I watched it as I always do. I'm very faithful to watch. It's put on by this professional sports league you may not have heard of, Major League Eating. Um, so there's this guy named Joey Chestnut who is, is, you know, like wins this thing every single year. He won it for the 15th time this year. He set the record last year with 76 hot dogs. Um, this year he only ate, only ate 63, which was kind of lame, you know. Um, but Joey Chestnut, he is like the champ, the champion of the world. Major League Eating, he is the champ. Um, so I wondered, why did he only hit 63? Well, so... I watched it. I remember watching it on ESPN, all right? It's televised. And um, I didn't see this. There there was a situation that I didn't see until afterwards that I think kind of explains why he didn't eat as many. Like literally in the middle of 
of the contest, some random dude comes running up on stage and he's got a sign. He's trying to steal the spotlight. He's got an agenda. I don't even know what it was. He was wearing like a Darth Vader kid's mask. I don't know what he was doing, but he comes up in front of Joey Chestnut because all eyes, all the world is watching the champ. And here's Joey Chestnut. And I, I didn't catch this incident until afterwards, but I think it's a good example for us to, to see today. So check out this video. You know what I'm saying? Here's the best thing. It doesn't, even, it doesn't show it here. I wish it would have captured it. Like, so he's shoving his face full of hot dogs. This guy pops up. It takes him like half a second to recognize this guy. You know, he like throws him aside and he literally goes right back to shoving his face full of hot dogs. He's probably still in the middle of digesting those wet, like soggy hot dog buns. Um, crazy. Joey Chestnut was focused, man. You know, I bet he was saying, I'm doing a great work. <laughs> And I cannot come down. I'm busy. All right. So, uh, and that's the reality. There's many good things we could be doing. And the enemy wants to distract us. And unfortunately, that was the high point of the sermon. It's all downhill from there. All right. So sorry about that. So the enemy tries to distract us. Here's the second thing the enemy tries to do. The enemy tries to accuse us. Verses 5 through 9, Nehemiah 6, here's what it says. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. I love that response. Verse nine, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So the enemy tries to accuse us. So these enemies come along and they are telling lies. They, they say, and it's interesting, um, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in passing and I didn't elaborate on it, um, but we see the same thing that happens often um, in leadership is there's these accusations that fly from an unknown source or this anonymous mob. And you see it here, says that it's reported among the nations and here are these reports. And I wanna read this quote from David Guzik that says this, vague accusations often sound like everyone is talking about or a number of people are saying. Such vague words can very easily give the wrong impression. What Sanballat accused Nehemiah of was false. If a thousand nations reported it, it would not make it true. A popular lie may be more dangerous, but it is not more true because it is popular. And so here are these accusations that fly that, hey, you, you and the Jews want to rebel, you want to be the king, and these are all flat out lies 
against Nehemiah. They're trying to accuse him. And Nehemiah's response was this. Not true. Not true. You're making stuff up. You're you're, you're inventing stuff in your own mind. This is not the truth. And, And you notice there's no elaborate defense. He doesn't go on to argue with them point by point on this. He simply says, not true. It's not true. And then it says in verse 9 that the intention of the enemy was this. It was to scare them until their hands would drop from the work. Until their hands would drop from the work. And so here is Nehemiah's response. It was to pray. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. That was his prayer. The enemy intended through these accusations, through these lies, to cause them to drop their hands, to stop doing the work that God had called them to do. And so Nehemiah's prayer was this, God, would you strengthen my hands? Help me not to get sidetracked. Help me not to let the lies get me off course and to drop my hands from doing the things that you have told me to do. Oh, God, strengthen my hands. And all throughout the scripture, we see this idea of hands is always speaking about work and action. Psalm 24 talks about having clean uh, hands and a pure heart. And so clean hands is always about the work that we do. And, and so Nehemiah says, oh God, strengthen my hands. So the enemy tries to distract us. The enemy tries to accuse us. Thirdly, the enemy tries to deceive us. The enemy tries to deceive us. And as we pick it back up in verse number 10, Nehemiah says this, now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Shemaiah said this, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the door of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood, again, this is this discernment. I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so the enemy tries to deceive us. And so you see this this false prophet or this self-declared prophet, Shemaiah, who comes in and he tries to lure Nehemiah into the temple. And, And his reasoning is that, hey, they're coming to kill you. There's this this supposed murder plot out against you. So, hey, why don't you meet me in the temple? And here's the reality with this situation is that Shemaiah was a hired hand. He appeared religious, but he was ultimately a deceiver. He was ultimately a deceiver. He used religious language. He said, hey, come into the temple. Come meet me at church. But he was 
a deceiver. And, you know, Nehemiah was not a priest, so he was not permitted to go into the temple. And so if Nehemiah had met with him there and had gone into the temple, to do so would have been a disobedience, sin against God. It would have been uh, given him a bad name. It would have ruined his credibility and reputation among the people. And so here is this enemy who's trying to deceive him. And he uses religious language and he plays the part of a religious person. And, and here's all I want to say about the, this today is, is the lesson is to be discerning about people. And I'm not trying to scare you into like, like worry that everybody's out to get you. But listen, just because somebody comes to you speaking religious things saying religious things, doing religious things, coming to church, posting religious memes, whatever it may be, that doesn't make them a follower of Christ. And we see this, that the enemy will even use people and things that appear to be religious, but are not. Because the enemy wants to deceive us in Nehemiah, in verse 11, his response was essentially, what kind of man do you think I am? I'm not going to run away, and yet I'm not going to go into the temple. I'm not going to sin in that way. And his response was, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. But verse 14, ultimately, his response was this. It was to pray. He says, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God. Remember them for the stuff that they've done. You know what he does? He doesn't get bogged down with, again, the enemy and all of this. He simply commits them to God. God, would you deal with them? I'm doing this great work that you've called me to do, and I'm not coming down. And so the enemy tries to distract us. The enemy tries to accuse us. The enemy tries to deceive us. But what we see in this story in these last couple of verses is that ultimately the wall is finished. The wall, the work of rebuilding the wall comes to a conclusion. Verse number 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. They lost their confidence. They were discouraged. Why? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So the wall is finished. And did you all catch how long it took to finish the wall? Anybody see it? 52 days. Do you know how long this wall had been in, in, uh, in, in crum had been crumbled and in disrepair? You know how long it had been laying there, broken down? 100 plus years. 100 plus years. And yet here we are in 52 days, the work got done. And so it might beg the question, well, like, why wasn't anything done in the preceding 100 years if it only took 52 days? Well, it's kind of like we see in our, in our own lives, in our world. Like people see there's a problem, there's an issue, they want it to change, but they do what? Nothing. And, and what we see in the story, and this is again a great leadership lesson, is that all it took was one person with a burden from God who prayed boldly, who acted boldly, who rallied people to the cause, and they got this mess done in 52 days, an incredible leadership lesson. All it takes is one person who's fired up for the cause. Here's, 
here's what I would say is an even better leadership lesson in all of this. Do you remember, I mentioned it kind of in passing earlier, when Nehemiah was burdened by the broken down walls, he began to pray. How long did he pray before the king, um, before God answered their quest and the king let him go? Did you hear how long it was? Four months. How long did it take to rebuild the wall? 52 days, less than two months. Here's the lesson. Pray twice as much as you work. Pray twice as much as you work. Pray and watch the hand of God do the work as you work alongside of him. It took half as long um, to build up the wall as he prayed. He started off the whole thing by praying. And so the wall is finished. Their enemies heard about it. They became afraid. They lost confidence. And the reason why they became afraid and lost their confidence, it was because they realized that they pulled this off because God was doing the work. They realized that God's hand was in it. And, and here's the truth. When God's fingerprints are all over something, the watching world will notice. When the church functions as the church ought to function, the world will stand up and take notice. When there is bold faith and bold action, and it's, it becomes obvious that God's hand is in the work. And this is what we see here. The wall is finished. And so here is the million dollar question. You know it's coming. How do we live in light of this? What do we do with this story? What do we do with this truth that God gives to us? And you know, I think we can learn so much about leadership from Nehemiah chapter six. I think especially when it comes to the role of leaders, particularly in the work of God. I mean, this, this chapter has been really encouraging and challenging in a lot of ways for me personally and for our staff. We worked through it this week and we were encouraged by it. Um, but I think there's a broader application for every single one of us. And it's this, that you will face opposition when you do God's work. When God's people get serious about doing what God has called us to do, we will face opposition. We will face attack. And so if we can understand that and know that and be prepared for it, it will help us to stand firm when the opposition comes. And so what is the work of the Lord for us? And, and I'm going to kind of clarify this because I think this could be, you know, when we talk about the work of the Lord, there's a couple things. There is a work that the Lord did for us, and there is a work that we do for him. And we've got to make sure we don't confuse these two things, all right? So here is the work that he did for us. 1 Corinthians 15, both of these I'm going to pull from 1 Corinthians 15, the very beginning of this chapter. It, it, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Here is the work that he did for us. It's the gospel that Jesus 
paid the price for our sin in our place upon the cross. And in so doing that, he defeated death and hell and he gave us victory. And this is the work that Jesus did and it is the only, he is the only one who could do this work for us. There is no way that we could remove our sin. There is no way that we could be forgiven. This is the work that he did for us. And if you think of, of Nehemiah, they called out to Nehemiah and they said, Nehemiah, come down to the plain of Ono. And Jesus, when he was upon the cross, you remember what they called out to him? They said, hey, come down off of that cross. And you know what Jesus said? I'm doing a great work. The greatest work that could ever be done. And listen, you're not gonna stop me. Nothing is gonna stop me. I will not come down. Like Nehemiah before him, Jesus was slandered. But like Nehemiah, he didn't defend himself, right? He simply spoke truth and he entrusted himself to his Father in heaven until he uttered the words, it is what? Finished. The work is finished. This is the work that he did for us. When Nehemiah finished his work that God called him to, it resulted in a wall that was rebuilt. When Jesus said, the work is finished, the wall that existed between God and man had been broken down, amen? That was the work that he did, the work he did for us. But then there's a work that we do for him, the, that work of making ourselves righteous before God. We can't do that work. That is a work that only he does. But there is a work that we do for him. If you drop down to the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, here's what it says. Paul says, therefore, covering what he's talked about in this whole chapter, therefore, since Christ has died and risen again, he's defeated death, he's given us victory. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, like Nehemiah, man, don't be moved. Don't come down, but always be abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord that he's talking about? The work of the Lord is the work that he did while he was on the earth. And if you look at his life, you know what the work that he did was? It was the work of making disciples. It was preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, seeing hearts and lives changed as they would submit to and worship Jesus, to see people conform to the image of Christ. This was the work of making disciples, and this is the work that God calls us to join him in. Not, not to build up physical temples and in walls, but to build our hearts and our lives and the lives of others upon the firm foundation of Christ, the rock. That is the work of the Lord that he calls us to join ourselves to with him. The way that we say it here is we wanna help others find full life in Christ, community, and mission. We wanna root people in a relationship with God, and yet here's the reality, because I believe that God is doing his work 
here, and I believe his hand is upon his church here. Do you believe that? But here's the truth, is that we will face opposition when we do God's work. Mark it down. Maybe some of you are feeling it already, that the enemy will distract you. This is, as a church, this is individually, the enemy will distract you. He'll give you good things to do. He will keep you busy with good things. He will try to distract you from the great work that God wants to do. The enemy will accuse you. He'll speak lies to you. He's called the accuser of the brothers. He will speak lies to you to to cause you to feel guilt and shame, like you're not worthy enough to do the work of God. And listen, it's a lie. He wants to accuse you, to get you to drop your hands from the work. But he's called you, every single one of you, all of us to do this work. And he will accuse you. He will, he will tell you lies. He will spread reports about you that you may even begin to believe. He, he will distract you, he will accuse you, he will deceive you. He will, he will do his dead level best to make you believe that small compromises in your life are not a big deal. He will deceive you. Hey, look at this, do this, say this. Don't worry about going to church. Don't worry about contributing. He will deceive you and make you think that those small compromises are not a big deal. Listen, he's a deceiver. He's a father of lies. He may even, listen now, he may even use religious language, religious people, religious things to try to lure you away from what God really wants you to focus in on, the work that he's called us to do. There will be opposition. And we can rejoice in this, that his work is finished, but our work is not. God calls us to his work. He provides us all that we need, and he helps us to endure opposition. He is the hero of the story. He is the one that does the work. We are to remember the Lord, and we're to fight for one another, but ultimately realize that our God fights for us. He has called us to this work. He'll provide everything we need, and he will be the one that helps us to endure the opposition. But listen, y'all, this is a reminder today that we've got a great work to do. We've got a great work to do here. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's not get distracted. Let's not get sidetracked. Let's reject the lies by filling, listen, this is why I harp on this every single week, we reject the lies of the enemy by filling our minds with the truth of God's word. So if you're not reading in, in the Bible with us, man, jump in with us. This is the way that you fight off the lies that the world and the enemy are trying to shove down our throats. Reject the lies. Let's not be deceived into thinking that our lives and our actions don't matter every single one of your lives and your partnership in this matters. As Nehemiah was leading the charge, man, all the people said, let us rise up and build. And they came shoulder to shoulder, side to side, 
arms locked with one another to do the work. And y'all listen, if we're gonna actually become all that God wants us to become as a church, if we're gonna accomplish the work that he's calling us to, it's gonna require us locking arms together, rising up and building and trusting God as the opposition comes, amen? We're called to a great work. I am doing a great work. I would love for us as a church, I would love for you as an individual, all of us collectively to be able to declare, I'm doing a great work and I'm not coming down. I am focused on God, what you have called me to do. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 58, let me leave you with this reminder again. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this incredible example of Nehemiah and the people building and rebuilding and Lord, facing and growing through opposition. God, what an incredible picture. So many things that we can learn individually and as a church. Um, God, we believe that you are doing a great work here. And so God, we wanna join you in that work, but God, please help us. Would you strengthen our hands? Would you help us to not get caught up by the lies and the distractions? all the good things. God, we want to do the great work that you've called us to. Thank you for your finished work on our behalf. We do all that we do because you gave everything for us. You gave your life. Lord, thank you for the finished work that you did for us. Lord, help us to be your people. You do the work us to do for you, that we would build our lives, that we would build the lives of our family and our friends and our neighbors and people outside of relationship with you, that we would do the work of making disciples, of helping them to build their lives upon the firm foundation, the only foundation, the foundation of Christ, the solid rock upon which we stand. God, we thank you that you use us. God, would you give us discernment and wisdom and strength as the opposition comes. Help us to hold fast. Help us to stand firm. God, we love you.